0: I'm Nina van Tilburg for News. Well, first we had load shedding for power supply issues in South Africa. And now a new word has emerged or a euphemism for the problems in water supply. And it's called water shifting. And I have Professor Anthony Turton from the Free State University to tell us more about that and issues with water supply. Hi, P- Professor Turton. So what is water shifting? You've to you and the listeners. Water shifting
1: is the latest official uh, policy uh, from the South African government. Uh, It mirrors load shedding, uh, but the difference is that load shedding is about controlling electrons flowing over wires, and water shedding is about controlling molecules flowing through pipes. And of course, a molecule is not an electron, so there's some quite fundamental differences between the two, and we're going to be learning more about those differences in the very near future because, uh, in effect, uh, the, uh, the the policy of water shifting is an admission that the water supply system in South Africa uh, has failed, at least in parts where water shifting is now becoming the official policy. So it's not a question of, is it going to fail? It has failed, and this is now
0: the way to prevent total collapse of the system. How serious is the problem of water supply in South Africa right now?
1: Well, it's it's a, as with all of these things, they're complex. But it's not a question that we don't have water in the country. In fact, the irony is that uh, at the moment, certainly over the last uh, 6 to 12 months, uh, our dams and rivers across the country uh, are the fullest they've been at least in the last uh, the 20 years that I'm aware of. So it's not, it's not as if we don't have water in the country. That's so not a water scarcity problem. That's not what, not what it is. What it is is a failure of, uh, of institutions to manage and distribute that water. So we see an institutional failure Mostly at the municipal level, and it's taking place mostly in your major metros because those are the ones where the media's got the uh, you know the the greatest focus on. So we're talking about Johannesburg, we're talking about Durban, and we're also talking about the uh, industrial area around well, what used to be known like as Port Elizabeth and East London. Those are the major areas where this kind of thing's happening at the moment now. But the watersheding is a relatively uh, a new policy. It's only just starting to be implemented now.
0: So, um you talked about certain areas that have problems. What exactly is the reason for all these issues? So, okay, as with all of these things that are complex,
1: so I'm going to just unravel the complexity and try and make it as simple as possible. So uh, we need to go back to 1994 when we became a democracy, and uh, we need to compare the population in the country then compared to what the population in the country is now. And we'll be very surprised to find that the population has virtually doubled in that period of time. So that's the one driver. The population has basically outstripped the capacity of infrastructure to deliver. But the second thing that's happened is that or overlaid onto that was the, uh, the legal and institutional requirement uh, um, mandated by the two uh, pieces of legislation that the ruling African National Congress brought in as the first legislation that they drafted from scratch. That was the National Water Act and the Water Services Act, and what those two acts did was radically re, uh, re, uh, readjust the uh, uh, the architecture of the of control of water and the governance structures uh, uh, governing how water is allocated in the country. So that's the second thing that happened, and then the third thing that happened was that uh, because of the political imperative of what was known as transformation. Uh, uh, dealing with equity, so-called equity issues, uh, there was a radical restructuring of the uh, skills base in these institutions. So we had a major loss of skills at the very same time that the architecture of management was, was, was altered in a radical way. So they're leaving behind no institutional memory uh, in the municipality because they were now expected to do things that they've never done before. And then, of course, on top of that, now you've got this, you know this, uh, the, 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 the whole sort of water water scarcity issue, particularly the population growth, uh, where, where there's been no, no significant infrastructure uh, that's been put in since 1994. So in a nutshell, that's, that's kind of what happened. We've got these three major forces that are now colliding, and uh, the collision of those three forces is now uh, showing us that the extent to which our water management institutions have failed.
0: I've, I saw one figure of um, something like Houtting residents use three hundred liters of water per, per day, compared to the international average of one hundred and seventy-three liters. So, what factors contribute to this um, discrepancy?
1: Well, that uh, number you quoting there is in fact uh, uh, hubris. Uh, that is, uh, that is a false number, because what the what the authorities are trying to do, while all of these systems are collapsing the one consistent thing that we see uh, happening is blame shifting. So the, the, the various categories of blame shifting, and the one element of blame shifting is shifting the blame onto the consumer. And there they, they, they're quoting the numbers that you have now quoted. There. But what they don't tell you in that particular number is that 50% of all of the water that's pumped into the systems in these big metros is lost to leaking, leaks in the pipe. So if you take that 50% of the water out of that number, then we are in line with the global average. So it is a false narrative to say that uh, that South African consumers are using more water than they should. That is not, not true at all. Uh, that factors in this 50% loss. So if you get back to the 50% loss, you know, irrespective of what the bulk water producers do, no matter how much water they put into the system, at least 50% of that water. Uh, leaks out of the pipes before it gets to the end user. So you are trying to pressurise a system that is characterised by a leaking sieve. You're trying to fill up a, a, a bucket with multiple holes in it, and that is why the systems have failed. We can't talk about are oh, they going to fail? They have failed. And until such time as we can pick up, fix up those leaks, uh, and until such time as we can get the leadership to stop uh, trying to shift the blame to somebody else and take responsibility for what needs to be done. Until that happens, we are not going to see any resolution to this problem, in my professional opinion.
0: So what can be done? I mean, the private sector eventually came in to help with solar and other energy resources, but what can be done to solve this?
1: Yes, so, so, so what we've been seeing happening up to now is uh, a couple of things. I'm just going to Going to uh, mention some of them. So the first thing that we tend to have is a, a misdiagnosed problem. In in diagnosing the problem, it's very important that you get the diagnosis correct because if you don't get the diagnosis correct, we then have an inappropriate solution being applied to a misdiagnosed problem, and that is what has been happening up until now. So of course, uh, we can we can look at many examples of this, and the one example now is that they say, oh, that infrastructure is uh, is inadequate, so therefore we need to spend lots and lots of money on infrastructure but they, they haven't uh, planned that infrastructure. They don't have the, have the uh, sufficient technical acumen within, the, within the, 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 the institutions that make these decisions. So, so therefore, they are, they are not even able to actually put out a, a mandate, for example, to consulting engineering companies to say, right, this is what we need you to, to design so that we can now start upgrading for the future. So the loss of skills in the center is, is, is of such a dramatic nature that I personally don't see any evidence at this point in time that any of these water management institutions that are responsible for for, for for developing the solutions, I don't see any of them with the ability to self-correct. So now, is this a doom and gloom story? No, not necessarily, because what's going to happen is that we have a situation where the, the ruling party is in power, but they're no longer in control of the situation. And that situation, the control is now being wrestled away through private initiatives. And it's these private initiatives that are starting to emerge. You mentioned now the uh, the private initiatives about solar panels and, and to try and uh, insulate uh, various entities against uh, the uh, the Eskom crisis. Well, the same is going to start emerging now in the water sector, and it's not going to be driven by any government policy. It's going to be driven by sheer necessity. So your your companies, your businesses. I'm working with many businesses at the moment, helping them to understand what the what the, what the the, the risk landscape is going forward because the risk landscape is uncharted at this point in time. And um, what you're going to start seeing now is uh, companies company's going to make a decision. Either The decision is either the cost of, uh, of of mitigating the risk of water failure is too high and they're then going to make a decision to disinvest and move on. That's the one kind of decision that's going to be made. And the other decision that's going to be made is companies are going to say, right, what do we need to do in order to make ourselves resilient? And what is the cost of that going to be? So is the cost of doing something to make us resilient, is that going to kill the bottom line of the company? Or is that going to ultimately help us to buy out the other companies that are no longer able to function under this changed risk landscape? So I predict from a business perspective, we're going to go into a period of time of of instability, and in particular where uh, some companies that can do something about it are going to do something about it, and those that can't do anything about it are then going to make a decision to either disinvest or they're going to sell their, their, their interest to those that can. So I predict from a from a commercial perspective, we're going to see quite a fundamental change in the in the risk landscape going forward, and we're also going to see a fundamental change in the ownership structure of corporations in South Africa. That's my professional uh, 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 prognosis at this point in time.
0: But uh, you could say solar energy is a bit more difficult. Can't you just drill a borehole? Well... That's
1: what many, uh, many people say. And that's what many companies have been doing. And then lo and behold, surprise, surprise, they find that the geology in South Africa is generally not conducive to good groundwater. And good groundwater, if you take, for example, the city of Johannesburg, well, it happens to be built on top of gold-bearing reef. And that gold-bearing reef has been contaminated by 120 years of mining. It's got uranium in the water. It's got, uh, it's highly acidic water. So where you're going to find water, it's going to be highly contaminated. So part of the work that I'm doing in the commercial sector now is helping clients understand that they must not engage in a knee-jerk uh, reaction of just trying to drill a boil, because wherever you drill a ball, you've then also got to now make a decision about what, uh, what treatment you need to make that water fit for purpose. And then the question I ask them with the commercial clients is, are you in the business of managing water, or are you in the business of producing widgets? And uh, that's, that's a very important decision because uh, you can, in fact, solve these problems without necessarily finding alternative supplies of water. And what it, what it comes down to, ultimately, South Africa is going to now be faced with a very difficult choice. And the choice is they're going to have to start recycling, recapturing, and retreating water. They're going to have to use water. A given unit of water is going to have to be used more than once. And if you do the mathematics of this thing, uh, and I haven't got time to go into all the numbers now, but just basically at at, that very high level numbers. If we use every unit of water that we have in South Africa, another 0.6 of a time, in other words, we've got to use all the water, just a little bit more than half again. We've got to recycle that water. Then we're going to have enough water by 2035 to create full employment and to still have a thriving and and, and investable economy. So I'm predicting that the, 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 the business of Recovering, capturing, uh, recycling water from waste is going to become a, a significant uh, business opportunity in the near future. And of course, the other business opportunity for for every single city along the coast, from Richards Bay to Durban to East London, Port Elizabeth, Cape Town, every one of those uh, cities is now fundamentally water constrained. And I can see no future for any of the businesses in that area, other than to to go to invest into. Uh, um, uh, Utility-scale desalination works. And I've just come back from a from a business trip into Australia, and I've learned a lot about the Australian business model, where they've gone just that route, where they've got multiple uh, desalination plants at all of their all of their cities there on the coast, and the benefits that accrue to that from a from an investor confidence perspective are absolutely massive. So what I'm seeing going forward is the likelihood that you're going to start seeing public-private partnerships emerging. And those public-private partnerships are going to probably have uh, the state as a, as a shareholder, but not as the majority shareholder. And you're going to see private capital coming into these uh, spaces. And then you're going to see the negotiation of off-take agreements where, uh, where these water uh, producers are going to become sort of independent uh, water pr- producers, much like you're getting in the energy sector now, when you get independent uh, service providers. And they're going to start uh, selling their energy into the grid. And the same will happen with water where these public-private partnerships, these, these independent producers are going to now uh, be servicing the, uh, the contracts into municipalities that are unable to, uh, to, to, to cope. And, uh, you know, the important thing is there's no shortage of capital, there's no shortage of technology, and if you look at the ocean, there's no shortage of water either. Uh, it's a question, ultimately, of bringing water, uh, the, 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 the capital and the technology together into these uh, uh, independent service providers, and uh, raising the the, the the private capital for you know, to service the uh, the long term contracts, so this is what I see is likely to happen in the next few, in the next couple of years, and we're starting to see it start in early stages crystallizing out
0: where are you seeing this crystallizing already
1: well there's been some tentative uh, uh, of uh, people dipping their toe in the water for example about desalination and uh, what's very interesting is that in Durban there's been some really pioneering work. The the, the, the the Durban water treatment uh, people have always been ahead of the curve. So, for example, the very first water treatment plant in South Africa that uh, that recovered water from sewage was in Durban, uh, the, the Durban South Wastewater Treatment Works. And uh, instead of discharging their uh, their effluent out to sea, uh, they uh, cut a deal with uh, SAPREF, the oil refinery, and they cut a deal with a large paper and pulp uh, mill. And uh, they they sell the recovered water from waste. They sell as industrial process water to those two plants. And that's been running now for, for a number of years. In fact, I was uh, there when, uh, when Ronnie Clashills opened it. So that was originally started under Carter Asmol. So in the early days of the ANC ANC majority rule, uh, that, that decision was made. And in that very same area, also in Durban, there's been a, a, an interesting experiment ongoing now where they've uh, taken uh, effluent from, uh, from, from uh, the uh, sewage uh, treatment plant and they've um, uh, mixed that with incoming seawater to make the seawater less saline. And what that does is it alters what is known as the osmotic gradient uh, of the water and uh, you then start doing the mathematics of, uh, of seawater recovery uh, through reverse osmosis and you'll see that you're one of your biggest uh, opex costs over the life of a, of a plant. Uh, let's say a 30-year life of a plant. One of your biggest OPEX costs is the cost of energy to force the uh, the uh, the water across the membrane. And if you happen to do, uh, to change the uh, osmotic gradient, then your OPEX cost changes in a dramatic way. So we're starting to see that the cost of this, what's known as a remix model, where you where you you blend in wastewater recovered from uh, you know, from, from from sewage, you blend that in seawater, and your OPEX cost now comes in in the order of about. Uh, of about 8 to 12 rand per per, per kilolitre. And that, of course, is now on a par with the international standards because the international benchmark for seawater desalination at the moment is 35 US cents per kilolitre, per cubic metre of water. And uh, that, uh, you, you can do the math on what that is for enough for rands. So at the moment, uh, the, the, the bulk water providers, the Umgani waters, the rand waters, they buying water in bulk from the state at between 8 and 12 rand a kilolitre. So already those cost lines are starting to converge. So so this I think is very much the know uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, the light at the end of the uh, tunnel, and I think this is without any question of doubt this is the way forward. And if you look at the at the size of the market that I'm talking about, we need to produce 25 billion cubic meters of water by 2035 of this type of nature. What what we what we what's called new water, 25 billion cubic meters of water. And just to give you a comparison of what, uh, just to compare that to something else, all of the water we have available in all of the dams in South Africa is 38 billion cubic meters. So we need to basically generate two thirds of the of the total current storage capacity of, of of all dams in South Africa, and then that's going to give us the 63, 64 billion cubic meters of water that we need to, to create full employment by 2035. So the numbers are there. You know, the market is there. There's a lot of stuff still to be. To be uh, to be finalised, a lot of details still to be uh, worked out, but all of the numbers are stacking up, and the technologies that we have available are all capable of doing uh, what I'm what I'm talking about now.
0: So, what does this mean for households, and how can they mitigate um, these issues? What can they do? Should they all draw you know draw boreholes as well? Well, draw
1: boreholes is Sir, uh, it's it's uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a viable option because firstly, boil yield in South Africa is generally quite low. And secondly, uh, in order to get the, 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 the water on the volume, on the scale that we need, remember water resource management refers to water in terms of megaliters. So the unit of management or the unit of measurement is a megaliter. That's a million litres. Now, you don't get boreholes that produce megaliters uh, of production. You, they, you know, they might produce uh, two or three, maybe four kiloliters. That's 1,000 that's litres. If you have a very good borehole, we'll, we'll give you two, two kiloliters. Now, a kilolitre is not a megalitre. Uh, so you need hundreds of those smaller boreholes in order to get the, the, the production on the scale that you require. So, so let's just quickly uh, you know, focus a bit on the borehole use and wh- what we see happening in places like Australia where you've got very sophisticated water management. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the big uh, sewage works in, uh, in, in Perth There's a place called uh, the Beanie Up Wastewater Treatment Works, and they recover a large volume of water from sewage. And what they do then is they treat this water to the highest possible standard, and instead of putting it straight back into the drinking water supply, they mm. put it into a groundwater aquifer. And that's called aquifer storage and recovery. And they can store that water for 25 years in the aquifer. And this is this is likely to become a technology that is going to become very significant in future. Um, that of, that technology, of course, is a groundwater-based technology, but the, that that technology is dependent on the availability of uh, appropriate geological structures under under the footprint of the of the water management area that you've got to uh, you know produce this water in. So that is highly specific for for no, for for very precisely defined. Uh, geological conditions, so it's not suitable everywhere. But there are parts of the country to, uh, that, that this is entirely highly suited to, to. So I think you're going to start seeing this kind of convergence of technologies, where groundwater will be used, but not as the primary source of supply. It will maybe produce five or ten percent of the total air, of the total water mix, but uh, but a large portion of the water will then come from from the uh, from from surface water, rivers and dams, and then a growing portion of that will start coming from uh, from water recovered from either from mine water or water recovered from the ocean and uh, this this I see without any question of doubt is probably going to be one of the biggest parts of the of the water
0: mix going forward. So what can households do do you think?
1: Well the you know the the the, the reality is that households actually cannot do too much and it sounds sort of like a cop-out to say that but but ultimately, unless you can produce water in, in your own household, and unless you want to become a manager of water and have to understand the chemistry and physics of water, and particularly the health-related risks associated with mm. storing and processing water in your own in your own backyard, it's, it's just not a worthwhile exercise. So, so uh, where households are going to have to start doing something, they're going to have to start. Uh, storing water on site, without any question of doubt, probably 48 hours worth of storage is going to be required. But what's happening in South Africa is that uh, there's been a trend over time now where households mostly go to gated communities or residential estates. So we're seeing a, a significant portion of uh, of the residential uh, market in South Africa are living residential estates. And and what, uh, what, what's interesting about residential estates is the, the economies of scale start kicking in at the residential estate level. So you might have, let's say, up 200 units in a residential estate, maybe up even up to 800 units in a, in a large residential estate, It now starts making sense to have on-site storage and water processing at the level of the residential estate run by the homeowners association or the body corporate. And uh, these people have got the, uh, the revenue stream uh, uh, that can sustain these operations. And you can then outsource the management of these operations to professionals. So I, I see that this is likely to happen Uh, Over the next decade, where residential estates will start to uh, replicate the services that the failing state is unable to provide, so water, energy, and sewage—those services, those three services—and of course also waste disposal. Disposal of waste is also going to increasingly become uh, become managed at 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 the level of the uh, of the residential estate.
0: Well, how safe is the the water? How is this going to influence the safety of water? Because we have had the issue of cholera. In human Scroll.
1: Well, you know, now we get into a, a completely different conversation now. And uh, the, the latest data that I've seen is that in South Africa, we produce approximately 7 billion liters of sewage every day in the country. 7 billion liters every single day is produced. And because the South African water uh, network is engineered on a certain philosophy, a certain design, a design ethos, if you like, And that design ethos is based on what is known as an indirect reuse model. So an indirect reuse model implies that all of the wastewater coming out, for example, of the city of Johannesburg, which is a vast amount of waste, comes out of the city of Johannesburg. It then gets processed at a number of treatment plants to a very, very high standard. And that standard is defined and reported to in the Green Drop report uh, that you might hear about. And the green drop reporting standard is a very stringent standard because it has to be a high high quality standard because that water is then discharged back into the river, and from the very same river that the, that, that water is then abstracted by the uh, companies that uh, that treat the water to drinking standards. In other words, your bulk water suppliers, and th- and that is covered by a thing called the blue drop report. So the blue drop report is defined by a standard known as SANS, S-A-N-S, the South African National Standard number 241. That's the standard that, that defines drinking water quality. And it is mandatory for all water service providers to produce water to the SANS 241 quality. So even if your residential estates or homeowners associations are going to, are going to uh, provide that, uh, they're going to have to provide it to that standard. Professor
0: Anthony Chardon, um thank you so much for speaking to us.